to keep that open um, as we uh, get on through. And as was mentioned by Jin, there are some talk notes uh, which will help you know where we're going. Well, Annette's uh, prayed so helpfully for us, so let's just jump straight in. And I want you to imagine that these four descriptions were a summary of your life. Rich, satisfied, carefree, spoken well of. Imagine that's a summary of your life. What one word would you use to describe that life? Same question, kind of different descriptions. Poor, needy, grieved, hated. What one word would you use to sum up that life? Well, I bet the words that you would not have used for that second one is blessed. And yet, if you have a look down at the second half of verse 20, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed, verse 21, are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name. Uh, or spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Uh, and for the first set of descriptions, maybe you even used the word blessed for that first set of descriptions. Something I'm sure it was definitely positive, and yet Jesus in verse 24 says, Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when people speak well of you. That doesn't make sense, at least not to us. But it does make sense to Jesus. And so clearly we need to have a change of thinking. How should we view our enemies? How should we view our enemies? We'd be forgiven for hating them, wouldn't we? Maybe at kind of best, just caution and kind of avoid them. What should we do when people mistreat you? Fight back. Get defensive. But, verse 27... Jesus says, I say to you who here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. That doesn't make sense, at least not to us, but it does to Jesus. And so clearly we need a change of thinking. You see, Jesus turns things on their heads. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, we've called this section of Luke, the the, the series that we're looking at, the upside-down kingdom. Because again again and again through this section, we're going to see how Jesus turns things upside down. That being in his kingdom, being one of his followers, isn't quite what we'd expect. But let's catch up with events. How how, how did we get here? So, So last week we saw three encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And Jesus, very clear to us, look, it's out with the old, in with the new. Out with that old, legalistic, self-righteous way of engaging with God, and in with the new, related to him by grace, by trust in the Lord Jesus. And those three encounters ended with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, plotting what they could do with Jesus, how they can get rid of him. And so clearly, if Jesus is going to do something new, he's going to need new people to do it with. The old religious establishment, that's no good, that's corrupt. No, he needs, needs a new team. 
And so after a night of prayer, he selects these 12 men from among the wider group of disciples, who, these 12 men who are going to be apostles. You see them listed in verse 14 to 16. These 12 men who are going to spend the next three years with Jesus. One was going to betray him, but the other 11 were going to serve and speak for Jesus until their own deaths. This is the new team. And these 12, and indeed all of Jesus' followers, they needed a solid grounding in what living in Jesus' kingdom was going to be like, what it was going to look like for them following him. And so, in verse 17 to 18, we read that Jesus comes down from a mountain with his uh, apostles, and other disciples are there in eager crowds. He cures and he heals those who need it, and then he taught. He teaches them about what life living in his kingdom is like. And he taught what's become known as the Sermon on the Plain. So if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, uh, probably the more famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through it, you'll kind of be like, I remember that from from that. Well, there are similarities, but but this is a different occasion. And we're going to see two things this morning uh, as we start to think, what does it look like to live in Jesus' kingdom? And the first thing we're going to see is, look, reverse your understanding of a blessed life. We need to reverse our understanding of a blessed life. Because in verse 20 to 26, we we get these four statements of blessedness and these four matching statements of of woe. So, So the word blessed means to be happy. To be happy because you're a recipient of God's grace. That's what it means to be blessed, to be happy because you're a recipient of God's grace. A woe, when someone says, like, woe is you, it's, a, it's kind of expressing sadness. It's a lamenting of this situation. It's like, how terrible is that situation? And, and you see, just from the table up here, we, we see how these, these blessings and these, these woes, they kind of match each other. Blessed the poor, and then woe to the rich, hungry, satisfied, and so on. And as we've already said, it's a complete reversal of what we'd expect. But it is important that we just spend a bit of time thinking about what these categories mean. Because it can't be a blanket statement of someone's economic um, status and, and their situation in life. So in verse 20, when we read, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It, it, it can't simply be an economic statement there, because the kingdom of God belongs to those who repent and believe. The way to salvation is not to give away everything we have, then we're poor and then we're in. Likewise, in verse 24, woe to you who are wit, woe to you who are rich. There are plenty of God's people in the Bible who are rich, who are wealthy. No, no these are these states we need to do a bit more digging, a bit more work. If we're to take, let's just take the first three together because they kind of fit together. The rich, the hungry, the weeping are those who recognize their spiritual need before God. Let me say that again. That the rich, the hungry, the weeping are those who recognize their spiritual need before God. Sometimes that is brought on by physical poverty. In times of real physical poverty, that does drive people to say, look, they need God. But when Jesus speaks to the poor and these things, it's a spiritual thing. 
So back in chapter four, when Jesus explained his mission, explained what he was going to do, he used the term poor. You can either turn back or I've got it there on the screen. Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah. And he said, look, this is what I'm about. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Isaiah, when we read the term poor, it is always describing all of God's people. All of God's people under God's judgments. And so Jesus says, blessed, blessed are you who recognize how needy you are before God. Blessed are you when you see that you need saving. Blessed are you when you are hungry for him. Why blessed? Why is this the blessed way of life? Well, when we see uh, at each stage, we're given reasons why um, this is blessed. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to you. You are part of it, and all of its blessings are yours. All of the spiritual riches in the present life, all of the unimaginable treasures of the kingdom of God in the world to come, they're yours. Blessed are you when you're poor, when you see your need of God. Blessed are you when you are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. On the flip side then, being rich, full, laughing, well, that's those who don't recognize their spiritual needs. You know, they're already satisfied by what they have. They're self-sufficient in every way. They don't need God. They don't need his grace. Laughing, uh, laughing is not just kind of having a go at laughing. We saw last week that Jesus' disciples were criticized for having too much of a good time. It, the, laughing, the way this w- word laughing um, is used is kind of like a, a foolish laughter, haughty, proud laughter. This is the kind of attitude that says, look, why would I need God? I don't need God. I've got everything I need right here. And even if there is a God... Why on earth would I need Jesus? I'm, I'm, I'm a good enough person on my own. I can do, do well enough for him. So again, Jesus is speaking the spiritual side of things here. But physical wealth and comfort can indeed so easily affect our lives. And Jesus says, woe. Woe when this is your case. Woe to you who make your present wealth, pleasure and comfort a priority over Jesus and following him because you've received everything you're going to get. And actually what is to come is emptiness. The final lines uh, of each kind of stand slightly apart. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Because of your trust, your service, your speaking of the Son of Man, Jesus, well, because of that, when that's, that causes you to be hated, excluded, and mocked, you are blessed. So much so, verse 23, rejoice in that day. <laughs> Leap for joy. What? Well, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, and so their fathers did to the prophets. 
Well, look, we, we kind of, um, looking forward and looking back, again, look forward to this great reward and look back uh, to the prophets. And actually, that's exactly what happens to all the prophets, those faithful messengers of God. Well, they were mocked and scorned and all those things. And so look back at them, and actually, if that's happening to you, you're on the right track. And of course, it would be the same for Jesus. These, these very starkly put categories of blessing and woe, that they cause us to examine our hearts closely. The, the contrast is deliberately stark. It, it, Jesus is, as it were, trying to divide the audience. And he's trying to say, look, which is, is you? Are you in this blessed category or are you in this woe category? Because Jesus is speaking to his, his disciples here, but there's a vast crowd around him as well. And to his disciples, he's trying to say, look, when this is you, when, when you are hungry and needy, when you recognize your needs and so cling to me, when you suffer for my name's sake, you are blessed. It doesn't feel like it. It may not feel like it. But you are blessed. You are receiving God's grace. Be happy. Rejoice even. It's encouragement to God's people and to those in the crowd who, who are not yet his followers. It's a stark warning. Watch out. Woe to you when you're just satisfied with everything you have in your life. Woe to you when you think you, you've got it all sorted and you're good enough. Because you've got everything you're going to get. And there's real danger to come. Jesus is calling us to turn our thinking upside down. This isn't naturally how we see it, but this is how Jesus sees it, and so this is how we should see it. Two very different lives, the blessed life and the woes. How do these two groups then interact? Well, that's the, the second half, our second point. Be radically different in your relationships. Be radically different in your relationships. Jesus says, love your enemies, verse 27. Jesus says, love your enemies, verse 35. Again, what radical, back-to-front, upside-down command that is. Surprising to us, but not just surprising, Hard, right? I don't know whether you consider yourself to have an enemy or enemies. Whether you do or not, think of the person perhaps that um, you like least in the world. Think of that person, somebody who might have done horrendous harm to you. That person who goes out of their way to be awkward and mean and troublesome. And Jesus says, love them. Love them. What does he mean? What does he mean by, by loving them? Well, he sets three, we have three sets of examples and then a summary. So have a look down at verse 27. Uh, but I say to you here, love your enemies. And here's the kind of first set. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. All those things that are saying, look, don't respond like for like. They are all the opposite of fighting back. 
seek, in fact, their good. So that boss who, who belittles you, who overburdens you, who's rude to you, offer them a cup of coffee when you go around to the office asking if anyone wants a drink. Much more and better than that, look, pray for them. Pray for them every day. Not just that they would stop being like that, but pray that they would be saved. Pray for their goods. I can think of two people in my life who uh, I really struggled to get on with, uh, both when I was a lot younger. Uh, and um, my youth leader, who's actually going to come and visit in a few weeks on his sabbatical, but anyway, um, my, my youth leader, I still remember something he said. He said, pray for them. Pray for them every day. It's not original to him. Jesus said it. Pray for them. And one of them is now one of my best friends. Uh, the other one got much better. But, but it, it, it changes our thinking, the way we view that person. Now this... Oh, no, I'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, pray for them. Pray for them. So firstly, look, don't respond like for like. Loving is actually seeking their good even though they're trying to hurt you. Verse 29, here's the next set. Uh, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Uh, apparently this kind of striking on the cheek in that Jewish culture, this isn't a kind of like a, a punch. It's more of a kind of insult, kind of back of the hand slap. Uh, and so it's more to do with kind of humiliation as opposed to kind of physical pain. Endure humiliation and be willing to do so. That one who comes and, and, and steals, wants to steal your coat, well, give him your, your jumper also. Again, these things of not fighting back, of being willing to suffer that humiliation, and even worse. And verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and to the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. But be generous, sacrificial, even to those, sorry, to, to those who ask for your help, and even to those who help themselves. Radical statements of love. It does, does beg the question, doesn't it? I imagine this is what you're asking. Was, does Jesus mean that literally? Well, it's hard to say a hard and fast yes. Okay, we could all think of exclusions. If a heroin addict asks you to, for money, no, don't lend it to them, don't give it to them. An abused wife, no, you don't go, yes, here, punch me on the other side. Look, Jesus, we can all find those things, but equally, let's not soften it to the extent that we, we kind of, oh, it doesn't really, really kind of mean anything. Jesus is speaking in these extreme ways to, ex to stress how serious he is about the love that Jesus' disciples are to show. Because I think sometimes we can be so concerned about someone taking advantage of us that we, we don't give at all to anyone. Of course there are limits. Of course there are limits. But let's, let love decide the course of action. Not love for ourselves and our stuff, but love for the person. And then Jesus sums it up um, in what's become known as the, the kind of golden rule. I don't quite know why, but, but in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. 
I think it's striking that Jesus puts it like positively, as it were, because I think our parental version of this puts it in the negative. Our boys are getting a bit older, kind of rough and tumbles kind of coming around. Uh, and I found myself saying a number of times that, would you like it if someone did that to you? No, so don't do it to them. That's the kind of negative version. Look, that if you wouldn't like it, don't do it. But Jesus actually goes further than that. That's just kind of the law of non-hatred. This is the law of, of love. Now, actually, how would you like to be treated? Do that positive thing. How do you want to be treated? Respect, fairness, patience, grace. Well, do the same to others, even your enemies. And what I th- again find interesting is that Jesus doesn't say anything here about their response. Jesus doesn't say, look, you do this and they're going to see the error of their ways and it's all going to change and that they're going to start being nice to you. Sometimes it can. It, it can have that effect. But it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Extravagant, selfless, costly love of others, even enemies. So, so very different to how our world thinks. The world says, look, do whatever you can get away with. Do to someone whatever you need to do to get from them what you want from them. Someone is horrible to you, hit them back. That's how our world operates. And Jesus calling his followers to a radically, radically different way. I'm sure you'll all agree that this is, this is hard So let's see now, why do we do this and and how do we do this? Why do we do this and how do we do this? First off, why? Well, because living like this shows you to be God's children and he will reward you. Why live like this? Why love like this? Because living like this shows you to be God's children and he will reward you. Verse 32 to 34 describe three, three things that even sinners do, even those who aren't God's people do. That they love those who, who love them back. They do good to those who are going to do good back. They lend expecting everything back. Look, kind of everyone does that. But, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. He's not saying, look, if you do do this enough, if you love enough like this, then you'll be made God's children. But he's saying, look, mercy is in the very nature of God. To show kindness to the ungrateful and evil. That is God's nature. And only God's children can do the same. And so when you are living like this, you show yourself to truly be one of his children. And in verse 32 and 34 again, um, we find this kind of rhetorical question three times. What benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? Look, if if you just kind of love those who are loving you, if you just do good to those who are good to you, what benefit is that there? But again, see that at the end of verse 35, your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. God is, and the the great encouragement to this, the the reason to do so is that we do this knowing that God sees. 
knowing that God sees how we live and how we love, and he promises to reward. So that's why. But then how? Like how is it that we can love people in this radical way? Well, loving enemies takes us to the very heart of the gospel. Didn't Jesus live out these things? Jesus was hated. Even from this early stage, we see the Pharisees uh, hating him and wanting to do away with him. And we we know that he will indeed get their way. They will get their way. Jesus was cursed. Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, crowds. He was abused. The high priest had him flogged. uh, whipped, the soldiers had him flogged and he was hung up to die he was insulted and humiliated and yet how did Jesus respond? love he didn't call down legions of angels to come and crush them He, he endured all of that so that he would lay his life down for his enemies and that's not just his opponents there and then actually that's for us here now today as well It is the distinctive love of God that he directs that love to his enemies. Further in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uh, will write in Romans uh, Romans 5, verse 6 to 10, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved in his life? You see those descriptions of of who God loved and who Jesus came to die for? Ungodly, sinners, enemies. It's the unique characteristic of God's love is that it's directed to his enemies. And so as we are seeking to love our enemies, we are to loving like God loves. The mercy he's shown to us while we show to others. And so how do we love like this to others? Well, it's, we need to stay close to this love ourselves as we are constantly living and reminding ourselves and enjoying the love that God has for us that we will be enabled to love others. Jesus teaching his new team what it looks like to live as his people. And he says, look, you need just a a radical change of mind. You've got to flip things on their heads. What what you think of as the the blessed life maybe actually isn't. What you kind of see as the kind of painful and difficult life, the woed life, but but no, no, that's the blessed life. And look how you think you you might live and how the rest of the people live. Well, that's not how you are to live as my people. This radical change. And this is what Jesus calls all of his followers to. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for uh, Jesus' teaching here. And those surprising to us in many ways. Please, Father, would you change our minds and help us to see things the way that Jesus sees. And though hard things too, yet please would we walk closely with you, knowing your love more and more ourselves, and so that that would indeed flow over in how we relate to those around us. Please work that in Jesus' name. Amen.